0: Bill and I compared notes this morning on our outfits and what we would wear, so (laughs) that is an accident. You'll need to know that. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning for this time that you've set apart for us and called us to gather and worship you. We acknowledge our great need to, to hear from you, not just the one day in seven, certainly that, but in every day. And we're grateful that you're gracious um, to meet with us, to provide for our every need. But Father, especially this morning, as we come to your word, we're grateful that you haven't left us alone to figure these things out with our own fallen mind, but you have placed your spirit in our hearts. You have given us your word and you use it to teach us and instruct us, to give us our food, our marching orders, all the things that we need. And so this morning, pray that you'd use this time and your word in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ, make us worshipers who are truly worthy of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, if you would. Um, Genesis 4. in our Monday morning Bible study, we are looking at the book of Genesis. And a, a few weeks ago, as I was leading this particular passage, I was I was struck by the by the narrative, by the storyline of of Cain and Abel. And this morning, we're going to look at one different from one different facet, and we're going to really we're going to look at it from the angle of worship. And then in a few weeks, I get the privilege of preaching again, and we're going to look at the same passage from a different angle. But this morning. We're going to look at this from the angle of what we can learn about worship. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper, keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat fat portions and the Lord had regard and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard so Cain was very angry and his face fell and the Lord said to Cain why are you angry and why is your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground And the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any found um, mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. As we come to this passage this morning, like I said, I want to look at a couple different angles this morning. We're going to look at from the angle of worship. It's important for us to know, of course, the first three chapters of Genesis. To understand what exactly is happening here when you understand the first three chapters. Indeed, if you want to understand the rest of Scripture, if you want to understand our lives, we need to know what happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Some have said that the first three chapters of the Bible is the content of Scripture, and the rest is commentary on scripture and what they mean by that is if you want to understand it if you want to know the foundation of all that takes place if you want to understand our lives and understand what takes place in the creation and the fall in the first three chapters you need to know that story and of course we know in the first two chapters we have the creation account where God spoke And brought into existence all that is. And we see his authority at work there. We see the relationship that he had with his creation. And especially in the creation of man. We see order. We see rule. We see relationship with man. We see relationship with creation. We see that there's a perfect harmony that's at work here. That as man relates to God, it's perfect. It's open. As man relates to his wife, it's perfect. There's no tension. There's no... Difficulties there. As man relates with creation, as he grows things, it grows naturally. There's perfect harmony in creation at this point, and the image of God is placed upon man in this perfect kind of way in which man reflects God. He is God's uh, regent on earth as he rules and he he names the animals. And so we see in creation, but in chapter 3, we're reminded of what explains and how we understand the lives that we live. How is it that we understand sin? We see it as rebellion. What sin to God is not an accident. It's just not a mistake. It's out and out rebellion against the order that God has established. Against his authority. And now everything works backwards, right? The ground fights against man. Man and and woman in their relationship, there's anxiety. There's tension that's there. And man in his relationship with God, there's rebellion as well. Things do not grow naturally as a part of that as a result of the fall. We have tension and enmity. We have malice. We have all kinds of things that mean to undo our relationships with each other and even within ourselves. And there's a spiritual battle now that exists. There's a battle between the serpent and those who would follow in the line who led Eve astray and those who would follow in the line of the one that God had promised. And if we turn over one, one page to... 315 We see the promise that God gives in the midst of the curse. He says that there's something that he's going to do, even in the midst of the fall. In verse 15, uh, he says, I'll put enmity between you, that is speaking to the serpent and, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, who is this he, will find out later that this he is to be Jesus Christ. None less. The he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a battle that enrages. The battle lines are drawn. There are those who would follow in the line of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, and those who would follow in the line of this one who will come, who will crush the head of the serpent. And in our passage, we see those lines clearly delineated between the lives of Cain and Abel. And if you were here last week, you rem- might remember the two kings that Bill talked about, the king Josiah. That as he heard the law of the, the Lord was read to him, as he tore his clothes and he repented, that he followed in the line and he led the people in repentance. And then the, the king Jehoiakim, as he read, you remember the description of the passages, they, as they read through the law, and he tore off page after page. Indeed, column after column, and he burned the law. And you see that clearly, the two different lines that are represented, those who would represent the line of God, the one who would bring his kingdom, and those who would stand in opposition to that. And so we see the fall is represented here by the the battle lines that are drawn here. And we see it represented in this passage. As well, as we come to the end of the fall, we see that man is banished from the garden and that he is clothed by skins of animals, which require the death of animals. And so, as we come to chapter 4, this is where we find ourselves. Man is outside the garden. He is in a fallen state. And so, the question that we're going to ask this morning is, what is life now like in a fallen condition Experientially, we can, we can answer it, but the text draws us into the situation of what's life now like in a fallen situation? And of course, if you read chapter 4 through 11, you see that there is a rapid decline in man, that you see evil continues to take overtake man and overtake civilization from chapter 4 through 11 and indeed throughout the rest of history. But in that particular scene in Genesis, we find it described more clearly. But the facet here as we look at the question, which is interesting, is of all the different accounts that the author and the God could present for us, what situation, what context would he choose in which to describe for us what fallenness looks like? And I think the setting that we're presented here is no accident. The setting that we find that God gives to us as we ask the question about what has this fallen nature done for us is a setting of worship. That the setting that Cain and Abel find themselves, the setting that God depicts for us as he first now describes for us the fall, is a setting in which two men are worshiping God. As both of them are bringing offering to God in some sort of, some way to demonstrate their gratitude towards him. So there's no accident that the context is worship. If you look back into the, the creation account In the garden, the the language there is used um, in the same language of a temple. The garden is a a sanctuary. It's a place where God and man dwell together. It's a place of worship for for man to God. It's a place of perfect intimacy in the garden. And now we see a place of worship in Cain and Abel as they bring their offerings to God. It's a, a setting that calls for us to ask the question, how now is our worship affected by the fall? What can we learn on this side of the fall about the way the fall would affect our worship? And as we sit here today, there's a sense in which we understand that. We know that as fallen individuals, as sin fully and completely permeating our being, that it affects our worship too. Even as we sit here on a Sunday morning, as we attempt throughout our days to offer our lives as a worship to God, an offering worship to God, we understand the degree to which it affects our ability to do that wholeheartedly. Our ability to bring to God that which he most deserves is greatly affected by the fall. We find sin fully filling our lives. Not completely in the greatest sense, but it's there every, at every turn. And our need for God to work in our lives, his, our need for him to make us into holy worshipers. Such a way that we could honor him and, and bring him the worship that is due him. If I could put it this way, we're impaired now in our worship. In the National Football League, at least with the Kansas City Chiefs, they have a status of a player who's injured. And on in any given week, they might put a player, what's called, on the pup list. And that's the physically uh, physically unable to perform list. The pup list. And so if you're injured, you're put on that list. And uh, the, some of us might put on that list even if we're not injured. But the, the point is that they can't perform. They can't do what they're called to do in a right way. So they're put on the sidelines, so to speak, because they're not able to perform. If I can use that as an analogy, we in human, as humanity now, as mankind now fallen, have been placed, if you will, on that list, spiritually unable to worship. I can't really make out that acronym. But you get the point that we are now unable to worship in a way that's honoring to God. We're impaired in our ability to really to bring him the worship that is worthy of him. And so that's the condition that we find ourselves in. That's the condition we find Cain and Abel. Both bent, both broken, and yet one in one case brings seeing a, an example of God at work in and through him in offering worship. And one, we're seeing the selfishness. We see pride. We see the bent and broken nature there in his worship. As we look at the account... What's interesting, at least one of the interesting things for me, is to ask the question, why did they even begin this way? What, there doesn't seem to be any, any kind of instruction that God had brought them to, to bring their offering of worship to him. There's no, if you will, explicit means by which God said, do this or do that, but it seems to be an expression of the heart, at least a recognition that they need to do something. It's a recognition that God is worthy of, of, of their lives, is worthy of something that they would have to bring. It's an acknowledgment that the work of their hands, in Cain's case, as, a, as a one who grows things, and in Abel's case, one who has shepherds' flocks, that in each of them, that the produce of their hands didn't come completely as a work of their hands, but that their dependency of, upon God is, uh, is seen there. So they bring to God an expression, an acknowledgment that they need him. That it's not just what they have done, but ultimately that they see him as the one that's provided for them. And so that for him, this is a tribute, it's an honor, it's a way to acknowledge to him his rule and his care for them. And so in this offering, it's not this understanding so much of sin, acknowledging sin as much as acknowledging God as creator, as Lord, as ruler, as the one who provides and we look at the, the two accounts, there's a lot of similarities they each bring from what they have grown or what they have made or what they brought, um, what they have, what, what they, the produce of their hands. Um, they both bring as a kind of an expression of their gratitude to God of what he has done for them. So we see both of them, they're kind of parallel to one another. Uh, they both are, are telling God, acknowledging to him that in some way, shape, or form, they look to him as the one that's provided all that they need. But what's also true about for both of them, nothing that they bring can be sufficient. Nothing they bring can be, can, can be sufficient to acknowledge and to really to demonstrate their dependency upon him. Because indeed God being infinite, God being the ultimate one that provides for him, nothing that they bring could be sufficient to truly communicate to him the value that that he has to their lives. So nothing they do could, could really express that. And yet God chooses one, accepts one offering, and rejects the other. He accepts Abel's and he rejects Cain. And the question for us today as we think about worship is why does he accept one and why does he reject the other one? What is it about Abel's offering that he accepts and what is it about Cain's that he rejects? If indeed he needs neither of them, God doesn't need what they have to bring. And indeed, what they do have to bring is insufficient. It can't be sufficient truly to demonstrate to him all his worth and value. Then why does he differentiate between one and the other? And the answer for us this morning is helpful as we think about worship. It's because the offering that we bring to God demonstrates and tells us something about our hearts. The offering that we bring to God, as little as it is, as great as it is, is still insufficient. But it tells us something about us. And it tells us something about our, our hearts. But the text leads us, it shows us this, but it also helps us to see that God steps in right at that point in our lives where we're even unable to bring a sufficient offering. We see that God is going to step in and he is going to direct. He is going to instruct. By his grace, he's going to help. And so, First point we're going to look at is the offering that's here. The offering that he brings tells us something about us. And you see that they each bring something, right? That Cain brings from the fruit of the ground and Abel brings from the firstborn of the flock. And the question, what's the difference, right? What's the difference between what they bring? And there's different opinions on this. But I think the text is clear. It might be subtle to us, but it's clear. It would have been clear to any Hebrew, any Israelite who have, would have read this, would have recognized there's a clear difference between what each brought. And you see that, that in the course of time that Cain brought something. He brought some fruit of the ground. But Abel also brought something. And you see the language here. He brought of the firstborn of the flock and of the fat portions. And any Israelite, when they read that, that That language would have jumped off the page. They would have acknowledged that there is something distinctly different about the offering of Cain than the offering of Abel. Or vice versa. That, That what he brought, what Cain brought, was something less than what Abel brought. That the firstborn meant that this was the best. That when Abel brought the sacrifice before to the Lord, the offering to the Lord... That there was something intentional about what he brought. There was something particular about what he brought and what he intended to bring. That Abel brings the first and the most valuable of his flock. We're not sure what Cain brought, but we know it was less. We know that it wasn't the best. We know that it was something less than what God deserved. And it seems to me... That as he brought it, it was kind of a sense of presumption that that whatever I can give, God will be fine. Whereas Abel's idea, his understanding, you can almost picture him going through his flock, right? And he's going through it and he's picking out the best. As he says, he says, who's the one I'm giving this to? The one who created everything. The one who completely sustains my whole life. The one who's worthy of everything I have to give. I want to find the very best one that I can bring to him. In an intentional kinds of way, he says, this is the best. And he chooses that one. He's diligent to select him, and he's diligent to bring him to God the very best that he can find. Because he acknowledges and recognizes that's who God is. He recognizes this isn't enough. What I have and what I can bring even the best, it's not enough. It's not truly, can't truly express my dependency on him But it's going to do, and I'm going to find the best I'm going to bring to him. Whereas you can find Cain, as he goes out, he says, oh, I guess this will do. I'll pick this. I guess this. I don't know what else to do with this. I'll give this to God. And so it's second best. And so in this case, the firstborn brings a second-rate offering. That Cain is the firstborn who should be the most diligent to bring to God the best brings him less than the best. And so God... Although nothing can be sufficient to bring to him. And nothing can be truly adequate to express to him his greatness. Yet he differentiates one from the other. And he says, I'm going to accept this offering from Abel. And I will reject the offering from Cain. And the question is why? Why does he do that? And we know that, right? We know that what we bring, the offering that we bring, the lives that we bring to God tells us, it demonstrates something to God about our heart. It's because... We find, in Cain's case, and we find ourselves really reflected of him, that our hearts are bent and broken. That our ability to worship, our ability to really to bring God to best, to really acknowledge him as best, is a challenge for us. And oftentimes, because we're bent on self and bent away from God, our heart is shown in that. And so we get a glimpse in the heart of these worshipers by their offering. As we look at what they bring, we see what really makes them tick. We see what they really desire. We see what they really love through the offerings that they bring to God. You see, the worshiper and his offering are inseparable. The worshiper and his offering, what they bring, it's inseparable. The two are connected, right? Each are reflective of the other. It means you can look at the gift, you can look at the offering, and it tells you something about the worshiper. And you look at the worshiper, and you can learn about the offering that's there. And in this case, you see that as Abel was so intentional in selecting his gift—it tells you about his heart. My wife is a wonderful gift giver. She uh, she is thoughtful. When there's a, a you know a, a wedding, when there is a a birthday for a you know a kid, for a friend, or whatever. She she diligently identifies what it is she wants to get. She thinks about the person. She thinks about who they are. She thinks about what they would like. And then she crafts a gift. She finds a gift that would match that person insofar as it's possible. And she's got this a great ability just to, to choose a gift that matches the person. And, and in looking at the gifts that she gives, you can tell it tells me a lot about the giver. The same is true, it's reflective. The gift is reflective in the giver. Now, me on the other case, I do my best. It tells you a lot as, as well, right? The gift reflects the giver. I do my best. But, but in this case, we see that the offering reflects the worshiper and the heart of the worshiper. And scripture is full of examples, both of genuine and phony worshippers. And how their authenticity is seen in their gift and their phoniness is seen in their gift as well. A couple of examples. We'll I'll turn to one in just a minute. But a couple of, we think about in the Gospels. You remember the woman who brought a penny to give at the temple there. And as everybody was bringing their offerings forward. And it seems to me there was a lot of money that was being brought forward in, in public. And Jesus stands up and stops the show and says, Stop. Do you see what's happening here? This woman who brought up and put a penny in the plate, she is giving more. given more than all of you because all of you gave out of your abundance. But she gave all that she had. And Jesus says, do you see what really is valuable here? It has nothing to do with the pure amount that you bring. It has, it has everything to do with the amount that you bring in reference to your heart, in reference to what you really want and what you really desire And Jesus identifies her action as being driven truly by a worshiper of God. And so she brings a penny. He says, she has given more. And you remember the woman who broke the jar, the perfume, to anoint Jesus at Bethany. She broke the neck of it. And she poured the whole thing upon Jesus' head to anoint him. And a great amount of money was spent that day in that perfume. So much so that the scripture says it was about a year's wages and if you remember that even the disciples, especially Judas, are trying to correct this extravagant use of this perfume. Why would you do that? Why would you waste it? And Jesus says, stop. Don't you see what's going on here? Do you understand that the worshiper and the matches the gift? The gift matches the worshiper and he commends her action. And so we see the genuineness of her worship. The wholeness of her worship as it's seen and evidenced in the gift that she brings is in this case the anointing of the perfume on Jesus. But there's another situation. If you turn with me in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Gift, gift giving, worshiping, and offering things to God. In the early churches, the church was exploding. We have a Kind of a speed bump as it grows. And we have God kind of doing a gut check for the church. Revealing something about the heart of the church as it's growing. In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, an account of them. I'm going to read the last two verses of chapter 4 because it flows right into this. And you can understand chapter 5 as we look at the last two verses. Um, Verse 36 of chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he sells some property. He takes all the money, he brings it to the church. Okay? He says, here, use this to feed the poor. Use this in any way you want. Chapter 5, verse 1. But, we know this isn't a good direction, right? But a man named Ananias... Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some for yourself, part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it? that you contrive this deed in your heart. You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. You see an example here of phony worship. You see Ananias inspire the thinking process, right? Church is growing. The organism, the organization, the movement of the church is exploding. We see Barnabas as he sells this property and he puts, brings the money forward. There seems to be some sort of recognition now that he gets as one who is a true follower of God and and they look at the recognition that he got and said, hey, that, that looks attractive. I would like the same kind of recognition. I'd like to be seen as a worshiper too. I would like to see, be seen as one who's a true disciple of Jesus, kind of like Barnabas was. But they're not willing to pay the cost of it. They're not willing to give the whole. And indeed, they sold the property They they could have just as soon kept some of it back. But what they did is they kept it back and they gave some forward. And of course the illusion here, their trick is to make it look like they're given the whole of what they had sold. And you see here that their worship wasn't wholehearted. Their worship was corrupt. That their worship was bent on self and their own self-recognition. And it wasn't completely to honor God. It was to honor themselves. And so God would have nothing to do with corrupt and pretentious worship in this case. God knows a phony because the gift, the offering, reflects the worshiper. God needs nothing that we can bring, but what we bring to him reveals our heart. It it reveals something about what we truly desire. God is not concerned with the pure content insofar as the content of our gift, of our offering, reveals our heart. When I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, we would often share, when we'd share the gospel with students, we would use a little booklet, a little track, maybe you've seen it, the Knowing, Knowing God Personally booklet. We'd walk through the gospel with that in, in kind of a form. And at the end of the booklet, you'd, you'd kind of, you would draw a person to a, a kind of point, and you would see if, if God was at work in a person's life, you would, you would help them to understand that the way that you might express your desire to know Christ is simply to pray a prayer. And in the booklet, there was a little prayer that you could read. But what was interesting about the prayer, and you would kind of walk them up to this point, and you would explain, there's a little preface to the prayer that's in that little booklet. And the preface goes something like this. The preface says, God's not concerned with your words, not so concerned with your words as he is with the desire of your heart. And you can imagine why that little preface is in there, right? Because a person might come to think, hey, there's something magical about these words. There's something special. If I just say these words, regardless of what exactly I mean by them, if I just say them, something's going to happen between me and God, right? We can see the same kind of idea with offerings, the offering of Cain, that there's something magical. If I just bring it, regardless of my heart, that something magical is going to happen, that God's just going to accept it. That there's something that's there, and for us too, right? There's nothing magical about our words and our prayers. There's nothing magical about the things we bring to God, but their value and the reality are found only insofar as they truly reflect our heart, our desire to worship God, our desire to, to give back to Him and to. Demonstrate to him the great value and worth that he is to us. You see, this account of Cain and Abel reminds us that God will not have half-hearted, self-bent worshipers. He will not leave half-hearted, self-bent worshipers as they are. But his intent in our lives is to engage us to purify our worship. Because he will either purify our worship or he will turn us over to the desires of our hearts. So and this, should kind of, this should challenge us as we think about it. As we think about what God's intentions are. As we look at our own lives, I look at my own ability to really to worship in a way that is honoring to God. I recognize my great need for him. To step into my life, into my intentions, if you will, to change them and transform them over the course of my life. You see that there's something about the offering That reveals the heart. But the beauty of this passage is that God doesn't end with the rejection of the offering. He doesn't just reject Cain's offering, but He is at work instructing Cain. He is at work in his life by grace, graciously wanting to engage him, to draw him. Now we know the direction that Cain goes, but the truth of the matter is that God is at work in each of our lives, instructing us as it relates to our own offerings as we bring to Him. And that God's instruction and His discipline for each of us. And you see the response. Look in verse 6 here. It says that the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, God doesn't delight in just rejecting his offering out of hand, but he engages him at this point is at work in his life. You see that Abel, that Cain's response here is one of anger. Why is he angry? Well, he's angry first because God's rejected his offering that he's brought. But I would suggest that probably he's even more angry that his younger brother's sacrifice, his younger brother's offering was accepted. And what we have here is sin at work in his life, certainly in God's rejection, but more in envy, more in jealousy. As he looks at it, he says God's accepted his but not mine. And so his anger is a result of his jealousy over his brother and the sacrifice that his brother brings to him. And it says that his face fell. His face reveals what's true about his heart. But God comes here with a question. And when God asks a question, it's always interesting in Scripture. God asks a question and he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It's truly, really more of a statement, right? It's a statement that says, if you do well, you will be accepted. What is God doing here? God is coming to him and he's given an opportunity to renew his offering. God comes to him and says, guess what? You can try this again. He gives him an opportunity to go back and to offer now to try it again. For those of you who are parents, you might know of something called a redo in your home or your family. That's when your child comes and he approaches you in such a way or responds to a situation in a way that's not quite right. And it doesn't do it quite right. And as a parent, you will say, whoa, 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 stop. Stop right here. Let's try that one again. Let's do that one over. Let's see if you can learn by your mistake the first time if you can get it right the second time. And that's what God is doing to Cain here. He's given him an opportunity to renew, to redo the situation, to respond in a way that would be honoring to him. And God does the same for us and in through the circumstances of our lives. When we fail at our offering, when we fail, we bring an insufficient offering, we don't respond rightly, he says, let's try that again. Graciously, he says, let's learn from that. Let's, let me disciple you. Let me help to transform and change your heart. Of course, the assumption here is that Cain is aware of what's wrong with the situation, right? God doesn't need to instruct him. He doesn't need to tell him anything about the, what was wrong or insufficient with his offering. Cain's aware of it. Cain knows what's up. He knows what's wrong. But God calls him to renew that. And he goes on to say, But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's two choices here. You're at a crossroads, he says. One choice is to renew this and to truly offer worship to me in in a real way, to respond, to submit to my direction, or the other way is the way of sin. It's the way of rebellion. It's the way that says that sin is crouching at your door. It will have you if you do not rule over it. If you do not submit to me, it will rule over you. So he calls him, and we see that the nature of sin in this situation is sin is no longer an external reality, but it's internal. The whole fabric of his life, and indeed our own lives, have been affected by that. God, by his grace, engages us at at different points in our lives and calls us to respond in ways that would honor him. Now, we can't exactly know Cain's heart. We can't know his thoughts. We can't know his intentions when he brought his offering to God. But we can know what's going on here. We can know by his response to God and what he does in the situation, that he rejects the rule of God. He rejects the instruction of God. He will not have anything to do with God ruling over and in his life. And so we see his heart to be deceitful. We see the direction that he goes. Indeed, we can deceive our own selves. We have the innate, amazing ability to deceive ourselves in the midst of our actions. But God graciously moves into our lives to engage us and to call us to himself. And the crossroads that he was at in this passage is a crossroads that we find ourselves oftentimes as we enter into situations and circumstances of our lives that God says, how will you now respond? Situations as we have brought to God our lives and, we, and he says, how are you going to respond now? Will you respond in worship by submission? Or are you going to go your own way or am I going to turn you over to the desires of your heart? So we see that there's something in the offering that reveals the heart of the worshiper. The offering's not enough, it's insufficient, but it reveals our heart. And it re- it's reflective of what we really want in our lives. And God steps in the circumstance in our lives where we do not worship rightly, we do not submit well. And he steps in, he gives us a redo, and he instructs us. And the question for us today is how will we respond in and through all those circumstances of our lives? How is it that we respond? What is critical about our response And again, we see that throughout our lives. If indeed our whole of our life is worship and our lives are an offering to God and they are his, then all those situations in our lives are opportunities for us to truly trust in him truly to learn from him, truly to receive his grace and to learn what it means to be a worshiper. I feel like each Sunday and through all the services that we are a part of, that's what we learn here is how to be worshipers, not just on Sundays, but from Sunday to Sunday in and out of our lives. What we do in those moments of decision, those choices that God brings us to of how we respond is critical for us. And God's gracious intent in our lives isn't just to rub our own insufficiency in our face. It's not just to rub our sin or our brokenness or the bent nature in our face. It's to renew us. It's to transform us so he reveals our failure for the purpose of purifying us to become worshipers that will honor honor him. So the question is, how is it? What's necessary for us to respond rightly in a situation like this? And there's two things I want to submit in conclusion. The first is that we need to respond in faith. As we come into those situations, receive God's instruction, we respond in faith. We read in, the, in one of the responsive readings today from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. And it's interesting there, in that whole faith hall of fame, as sometimes it's called, that list, that Abel, the very first one to be acknowledged or recognized, is recognized for his faith. That the very thing, it says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. That there was something faith- Uh, driven about his sacrifice, about his offering to God that, that Abel brought. And it made his sacrifice more acceptable to God. In some way, we see that what Abel did was that he grounded his actions, his worship in the unseen reality of God. And again, you can picture him as he brings this offering to God. He says, it's not sufficient. It's not enough. But in light of who God is, who my eyes can't see, I need to bring something that's worthy to him. And his life is driven by faith. It's driven by the idea that even though this is insufficient and I'm bringing it to God, it says in this passage in 11.4, that he was accounted righteous. It's because he recognized, who am I to bring this to God but his faith enabled him to act to bring something to God because he recognized that even though God is God and I am who I am and there's a great gap between us, my faith is that God will, is sufficient to fill the gap between he and me. And that somehow as I bring the best of what I have, that God will cover the distance. That he will atone for the difference in the distance between he and me. And so his faith drove him to act. It drove him to bring the best. His faith was not presumptuous of God. His faith anchored his life, and faith in the same way anchors our lives from day in to day out. It's faith that enables us to worship on good Sundays and bad, and every day in between. It's faith that we learn what it means to worship at weddings and baptisms and at funerals alike. It's by faith that we learn what it means to worship in the context of prosperity and plenty as well as calamity and loss. It's by faith that we learn through good times and easy times and times of plenty and times of sickness and times of health what it really means to worship. God leads us through that path and he says this is what it means to learn to worship and it's by faith that we are able and empowered to do that. So faith is necessary for us to respond to God's instruction, to respond well. But the second thing is humility. Humility is necessary. We know that pride is the very thing that stood uh, before Cain. It was his undoing. It was his downfall. It was a thing that kept him from responding rightly to God. It was a thing that kept him from submitting and bowing his knee to God and, and receiving his instruction his own rebellion, and his own pride. And God reminds us throughout Scripture of how he stands against those who are prideful. That he stands against them, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see many examples throughout the narratives of Scripture as well. of Those who would stand against him, who would stand as prideful, he will bring down low. Isaiah fifty seven fifteen reminds us, God tells us, he says, I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the heart of the lowly, to revive the spirit of the contrite. And so we see that God's intentions in and through our humility is to change us and transform us, not just to crush us. It's to crush us so that we can find life. Humility enables us to acknowledge that God can give and he can take. He can do whatever he chooses, and that our best is to receive from him, to accept it as good, and to lay our lives down before him as an offering of worship. To submit to him and to give, and this is what worship is. C.S. Lewis in, in his book, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the, the Horse and His Boy. There's an episode, this is, this is one of my favorite of, of the seven. Whether you've read it or not, I'll give you a, just a very quick recap. In, in the end here, we've come and there's two horses and two children have made their way the journey and now they're coming in contact for the very first time with Aslan, the lion. The two horses, kind of two different character qualities, one horse, the male horse, the stallion, Bree, is one who's prideful, concerned only for himself. And the, the mare, the hen is her name, is the one who... All along the way, there's a humility that that reflects in her life. And now Aslan shows up. Boom, he surprises both of them. And in the situation, Bree, the the stallion horse, runs like a scared horse. When the the, the female, the mare, looks at the lion and says, I'm not getting anywhere. He's going to get me whether I run or not. So I might as well just run towards him. And there's a, an encounter, an interaction that really reveals, I think reflects, just a great picture of what it means to interact with God in humility and in faith. Um, then when, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you'd like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Please, my dearest daughter, said Aslan, planting a lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose. I knew that you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. Her response to the lion, the king, (laughs) recognizes, I can't get anywhere. She says, you may eat me if you'd like. I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. That's a picture of worship for us. And humility, it says, God, whatever you do to me is what's best for me. And I bow the knee, I submit myself to you. The irony of the story of Cain and Abel is who gets eaten, who gets taken, whose life is quickly squashed out. It's the one who brings God the offering, the sacrifice, who by faith speaks and his Message: His blood still speaks. And next time I speak, we'll talk more about that. But we see faith and humility are the very things that enable us to respond rightly to God's instruction. Question is, how is it that we're to grow as whole and holy worshipers of God? We need him to do something in our lives. There's something about the offering that we bring day in and day out. It's not enough. It's not sufficient. We're impaired in our worship, even our ability to bring it to him. But as we bring it to him, it demonstrates that we are trusting in him, that he's the one who's able to do that work in our lives. And the, the grace portion of this is that what we can't do, he does. He instructs in our failure and in our success. He is at work transforming our hearts and our minds, enabling us to truly to honor, to offer, offer worship to him in a way that would honor him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning as we sit here as worshipers desiring to grow in our, our knowledge of you, but more than just knowledge, we want to grow in our capacity, our ability to truly worship you with our lives. We know it has something to do with our offering, not just our money, but our lives. And so we need you, we need you by your grace to do that transformation in us, to change us. You will not have with half-hearted worshipers, but you will do one of two things. You will either purify us in our worship or you will give us over to the desires of our hearts, make the desire of our hearts truly yours. Father, we're thankful today for so many different things, for the privilege we have to worship and to to gather here this morning, and yet we acknowledge that we have great needs as a congregation. Many people are sick. Many people are hurting people who are without job or underemployed. Many different situations in our lives that we bring. There's challenges and difficulties in our homes and our families. And so, Father, we look to you and ask first and foremost that you would enable us to be worshipers in the midst of these circumstances, submit to you, and to look to you for that need and to find you to be sufficient. Father, we're grateful that we've been able to send out a good deal, many missionaries from here and to be a part of your gospel going forward around the world and and so we pray for them. Father, I pray this morning, I, I think of uh, Amy Young, whom we heard from last week. Um, in the Far East, we pray for Brad uh, Supple in the Middle East. We pray for Marcus Brooks as he leads the Jesus film and helping to coordinate those efforts, Father, that you would help them to spread this wonderful message of the gospel. And so we pray for them enable us as a, as a body as well. As you transform us, help us to be people who easily and quickly speak of your grace and your kindness to us and the gospel. Help us to be worshipers day in and day out in the good times and the hard times. Thanks for the privilege of, of being here this morning and for this time that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'd ask you to stand for the benediction. And respond to the benediction, receive this. It's a, it's a great message, again, a reminder of the power that God gives us that we need to transform us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. Let's sing.
1: glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung Him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge The Lamb who is my righteousness The Lamb who is my righteousness And I will glory in my Redeemer My life He bought, my love He owned I have no longings for another, I'm satisfied in Him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm held by His grace. Feet are firm held by his grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness, his triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer Who waits for me at gates of gold And when He calls me, it will be paradise His face forever to behold His face forever to behold His face forever to behold behold. Go in peace.